0: Please turn on your Bibles to Psalm 103, the psalm that I read with you, um, this evening I, I wish to focus your minds on verses 3 to 5 of this psalm. We will just read through those verses once again. Psalm 103, verse number 3, and it reads, uh, "'Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, the book of Psalms is the book of experience. The writers of the Psalms draw their material from their personal experiences in life under the hand of Almighty God. That is truly the nature of this psalm, Psalm 103, written by David as the title shows, and therefore it is a psalm of testimony. David wrote many of the psalms, and many of them are in the form of paying testimony to what the Lord had done for him. And here he remembers what God had done for him, and on that basis he writes the testimony that. This 103rd Psalm contains and presents to us. I trust that you have noticed as we read through it this evening that it is entirely a Psalm of praise. As you read through it, you will discover that it does not contain one single petition or one single request. Rather, you will find that in its entirety, It consists of exhortations, encouragements, to praise the Lord, who is worthy of all honor and of all glory. In fact, when the psalm is studied carefully and read carefully, you will discover that David presents 17 reasons or arguments for giving God the praise that is due to his name. A number of those arguments or reasons for praising the Lord focus on who God actually is, and they highlight some of the glorious attributes, some of the wonderful qualities that the Lord alone possesses, His sovereign majesty, His sovereign authority, His sovereign commandments, His sovereign will, His sovereign dominion. Other reasons for praising the Lord are based not only on who He is, but what He does in His creative and providential rulership. The psalm reveals that there is no area where the Lord is not present. There is no facet of this world or creation in general where God does not rule. You will notice in the closing verse a reference to all His works in all places of his dominion. And therefore, David praises God for who he is, and he praises God for what he has done in those realms of creation and providence. Now, in the light of all these details, David was fully aware, very, very much aware, that he and everything about him was under the direct control of his God the psalmist recognized that there was no possibility of escaping the searching eye of a holy God. David often felt that. And I believe, and I say to you, of course, that Psalm 139 is the classic psalm with regard to that matter of not being able to escape the the knowledge of God, the omniscience of God, the all-seeing eye of God. But it also comes out here, In this psalm, no possibility of escaping the searching eye of a holy God. And therefore, David was fully conscious of his personal sinfulness. And he refers to his sinfulness a number of times through this psalm. And in what he writes in terms of praise, David, therefore, is fully focused on the Lord's great purpose of redemption the redemption of sinners. It comes through again and again and again down uh, in the lines of this marvelous psalm. And therefore, in that truth, the psalmist obviously found great comfort and great assurance within his own mind, within his own soul, that this God who's over all things, who knew Him, who saw Him, who was in control of His life, was the God of redemption as well as well as providence and creation, the God of redemption, it's so clear, it's so plain, and therefore David draws the comfort for his own soul that he finds in that great fact of God's redemptive purpose for lost and guilty sinners. It will never be found in the psalm that much of the 17-fold argument for praise revolves around the joyful and the vital experience of being delivered from one's sins. Indeed, that's the very first reason for praise that David mentions here, beginning in verse number 1. In verse number 1 and in verse number 2, He urges his own soul to bless or to praise the Lord. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. The word bless here with regard to the Lord doesn't mean that we can bless the Lord in that sense that He blesses us. But what it means is that He is, that is, God is the only object to whom true praise should be given. Blessing and honor and glory and majesty is what is meant here. And that's what David is saying. Bless the Lord, O my soul, he says there in verse number one. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So, he's addressing his own soul. He's urging himself. He's reminding himself to bring before the Lord and express before the Lord his praise and his gladness and his thanksgiving for all that the Lord was to him as his Redeemer. And that's what he means by those words in verse number 2. Forget not all his benefits. He urges on himself the necessity of not being forgetful of the benefits that he had received from the Lord. Now that word benefit, and the Hebrew word for benefit, speaks of an act or a work. In the context of the psalmist's experience... He refers to God's dealings with his soul. That's what he means when he refers to the benefits of God. Let me tell you something. The greatest benefit that a sinner could ever receive from God is that God will deal with that soul of yours and bring you into the possession of of everything that you need to save you and deliver you and make you his own. That's the greatest benefit that a sinner could ever have. When God begins to speak, God begins to move upon the heart, God begins to trouble you, make you anxious, make you concerned, have you aware that you are without these benefits that you don't know anything of the blessings of redemptive uh, truth and redemptive power, that you're actually lost, that you are guilty through and through, and there's nothing you can do to undo your state or your condition. You can't do it yourself, and yet God is showing you through David here who rejoices in the benefits that he had come to know and enjoy in his own life, that he is able to do that for you. And therefore, Let us think about it that way. The greatest benefit that could happen to you tonight is that God would reveal Himself to you and then save you. That's what David's talking about. That's what he's writing about. And he puts it down on the page of Holy Scripture and he proceeds in verses 3 to 5 to outline the benefits that his soul had received. I know that many people, well, at least some people, find that not easy to understand because it does refer here in one of these statements to God healing all our diseases and people think, well, that's a physical matter, that's a physical benefit. But I want to show you tonight, no, it's not. It's a spiritual benefit. We're going to see that. But I simply show you that in these three verses, three through to five, actions are revealed that God alone is able to perform For the souls of men, it is vital that sinners come to the awareness of the needs of their souls. That you are fully conscious, as I've already said, that you do not have the benefits of God in your life, You know nothing of the blessings of the covenant of grace and redemption through the blood and the work of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins and all that flows out of that marvelous panoramic array of all that God does for men. You know nothing of it, sinner. And until you come to taste and find for yourself what is laid out here by David, Your soul will remain hopelessly lost and your future dark and bleak and your eternity sorrowful and woeful in the extreme. Let us come, therefore, and consider these benefits that enrich the soul. They are found here, as I say, in verses 3 to 5. I sum them up in a threefold way. Number one, there is the saving of the soul, the saving of the soul. Look at verse 3, it says, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. I want to take those three statements because they have to do with the saving of the soul. They are a presentation of what the Lord does to the saving of the soul. Because remember this, It's the soul that is being addressed. Bless the Lord, David says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not his benefits. Then he mentions these three benefits that are summed up this way. They have to do with the saving of the soul. Now the Bible very often speaks of the soul being lost. And you read about that, for example, in those solemn, solemn words of our Savior in Matthew and also in Mark and other places in the Gospels. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or you think of Ezekiel who wrote those solemn words of his in Ezekiel 18 and verse number 4. The soul that sinneth it shall die. doesn't mean go out of existence as the cults would try to misrepresent those words to mean, but rather it means that it comes under the power and the awful stroke of eternal death. Beyond deliverance, the soul that sinneth, it shall die the second death and from that second death there is no recovery. So the Bible does speak of the soul being lost. May it make you tremble, man. May it make you shake, young person, that you are in danger of your soul being lost as you are without Christ and in your sin. But thank God the Bible also speaks of the soul being saved. And you have that clear uh, presentation of language in various places. Uh, James 1.21 talks about coming to the Word of God, which is able to save your souls. Or James five verse twenty, where it refers to a multitude of sins being covered, and thereby the soul being saved from death. And so I could take you to verse after verse that remind us Of these matters of the soul either been lost on one hand or saved on the other hand. And that's what David here is writing about where he refers to the benefits. And he says, then, in that context, who forgiveth all thine iniquities who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. And he's referring there to the iniquities of the soul and the diseases of the soul and the destruction of the soul. That's what he writes about. It is pertinent. It is solemn. It is serious. When you consider what he has to say here about the saving of the soul, he certainly underlines the need for the soul to be saved. Because as I've just enumerated for you, he does refer to the soul's iniquities, the soul's diseases, the soul's eventual destruction if it dies, if the person dies without the Lord. These items reveal, these details reveal that David was aware of the inherent sinfulness of his own soul. And he's aware and conscious of the reality and the nature of sin within his soul, in the better school of life and in the better school of experience, he had been well instructed, you see, concerning his own personal sinfulness and therefore his own need of salvation. What do you find here about this matter of the need for the saving of the soul? The soul needs to be saved because the soul is stricken with depravity. That's first in view where it refers to iniquities. That word iniquities is a very graphic word in the Hebrew language. It's a word that signifies perversity. It refers to and signifies the depraved condition of the soul, man's depravity. In other words, within the very nature of man, there is a sinfulness, a sinful incarnation of, A bent to wickedness. It lies in the very depths of man's soul. It dominates him. It drives him. It directs him. All that he is, all that he does by way of actual transgressions flow out of a soul that is totally depraved. There's not one aspect of man's soul that is not marked by his depravity. David is referring to it. And that word, iniquities, you know, the original Hebrew word signifies to bend, to curve, to twist, to distort. The language is graphic. And in that manner, human depravity is revealed. The soul is bent. The soul is not straight. That's what the Lord is saying here. The soul is twisted. It is distorted because of sin. There's this Inherent, this innate inclination to sin. You don't have to teach people to sin. You don't have to guide them as to how they sin. It's there. It's there from the moment that they're conceived in their mother's womb. It's there as soon as they appear in this world and begin to develop and grow as little ones. The perversity comes out. The rebelliousness that's in the heart, it displays itself. This depravity that has taken man and has engulfed man, it's there. And therefore, sinners within them have a depravity that governs their thinking, that governs their desires, that governs their likes and uh, what they don't like and so forth. Depravity is there the whole way through. I think of those words of the Apostle John as he defines sin in First John 3. That well-known verse, verse number 4, It says in our our translation of the Scripture, the A.V., that sin is the transgression of the law, and the literal translation could be this, sin is to do lawlessness. Sin is to do lawlessness. That's what sin is. A lawless heart, a lawless nature, The carnal mind, Paul says in Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is enmity to God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. My friend, there is David's awareness of sin's depravity. But he's also aware of sin's defilement because he goes on to speak of his diseases, the diseases of his soul, I've already referred to this. It's not a reference to physical sickness. Rather, it's the diseases that are in the soul, the spiritual maladies that have come upon the inner being. The word diseases here comes from a root that means to be sick. God is telling us that in the soul of man, because of sin, there is a form of sickness, that leads to the defiling and the corrupting power of sin being at work within that individual and it gives rise to spiritually unhealthy powers that characterize and drive and dominate that individual in every aspect of his life. In other words, my friend, as you watch people, as you view people and you listen to people and you regard how they live and how they behave and how they think and what they have to say and what they like to read and what they like to listen to and that which they say is entertainment, you begin to discover that they've got this defiled and corrupted and sick soul. The power of the soul to break God's law in an inward sense. That's really what this is all about. It talks about who healeth all thy diseases. The soul has a power to break God's law inwardly. There's the out, outward breaking of the law. If a man goes and steals another man's money, physically and literally, well, he's broken the law of God, thou shalt not steal. But God tells you and me that right within the heart, theft is committed through covetousness. When someone wants, desires, Loss for what somebody else has. That's the commission of sin within the soul. That's the commission of theft. And you can develop that thought more and more and more as you think about this line of truth that's here. The defilement of sin. The fact that the soul is ridden with the disease of sin. My dear friend, that's the reason why man's thoughts are evil. Man's desires are evil. His inclinations are evil and deceitful and ungodly. Before they are ever expressed outwardly, his soul is full of all this. The disease of sin, and therefore, that's why the soul needs to be saved. Well, the soul's depravity, but the soul's defilement, or because of sin's defilement, and there's also sin's destructiveness, because he says in verse four, "Who redeemeth thy life from destruction." That's the soul being redeemed from destruction. And the destruction, of course, is eternal death, eternal loss. May I just re-emphasize that to lose the soul does not mean that the soul ceases to be, that the soul goes out of existence, that it no longer is alive. Again, Deceivers will tell you that to try to escape the awful and the terrible solemnity of the doctrine of eternal punishment. And they will deceive their listeners and those to whom they will deliver their lies by telling them that there's no hell and there's no wrath and that what happens at the end of life is your, your soul simply ceases to exist. That's for another day, another night, whatever, but my dear friend, let me tell you, when you study the Bible carefully and it talks about the soul perishing or the soul being destroyed, what it means is a loss of well-being, not a cessation of existence, a loss of well-being. As soon as a soul in a, a sinner's uh, possession, leaves this world at death and goes out into God's eternity and is not ready for eternity, that soul has lost all well-being forever. There's no more hope. There's no more recovery. There's no return. There's no coming back. It's all over. And that soul remains in that state of a loss of well-being Forever forever, and therefore there is sin's destructiveness. Now, do you see why David here is writing about the saving of the soul and underlining why the soul needs to be saved? He uses words. He uses terms. He brings them very powerfully before us to indicate that the need for the soul to be saved is beyond question, and therefore your soul Your soul, your soul needs to be saved. There's the need for the saving of the soul. But then there's the nature, the essence of the saving of the soul. Go through those words again, those three statements. Listen carefully. Look closely. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction. And you'll notice there that here we have David now looking at these words from another angle as he writes about the saving of the soul, not only the need for it, but also the nature of it, how the Lord actually does save the soul. Man is depraved, but the Lord forgives him. He's defiled, but the Lord applies to him the healing balm of the gospel. He faces destruction, but Jehovah redeems him, buys him back from the destruction to which he is headed. And therefore, in the saving of the soul, there's everything here that a sinner requires for that soul to be saved. And we can rejoice in that tonight. That's what David is doing, you see, In the context here, he's rejoicing that, yes, he had a soul that needed to be saved because of his iniquity and disease and destruction. But, thank God, he can write about the Lord who had saved his soul. And so, what do you need to do? You need to understand how the Lord saves souls. It says here, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. Who forgiveth? all thine iniquities. What a marvelous little fact put in such simple terms. Here you are, my friend, and the depravity of your sin is of the depths and the nature that I have sought to describe for you. But with one stroke of His blessed grace, the Lord forgives those iniquities, even the inner iniquities of your depraved heart, never mind the outward transgressions of which you've been guilty right through your entire lifetime. It says here, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, and there's the judge granting his remission, his pardon. You see, it's a judge who forgives. It's a judge who grants pardon. That's what's in view here. Who forgiveth. And this is the judge of all the earth. This is God Himself. It's God who forgives. And God is the judge. And therefore, when we think about the courtroom scene and the legal system, we are dealing with a holy God. And a holy God, we've been told here, is able to forgive. And the question is, on what basis is God able to forgive our sins? He just does not do it by a decision of his own will. He does it on the ground and the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of the whole Bible. God is the judge. God is eternally and unchangeably just. If you and I received what we truly deserved, He would not forgive our iniquities. He would damn us to the lowest hell for those iniquities. And yet here we read that He forgives those iniquities. And He does it because Christ has died. Christ has rendered satisfaction for those iniquities. Christ has paid the price by His own suffering, by the shedding of His own precious blood. Divine justice has been fully satisfied through the atonement. All of that great work of the cross, that work of our Savior, both in what He did in His life and what He did in His death, it's all in view here, by inference at least, when it says, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities? God forgives iniquity because God is eternally satisfied through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And my friend, that gives you great hope. Because you cannot earn forgiveness. You do not deserve pardon. You're not entitled to it. Neither am I. No man is. And therefore, on what ground can God forgive the likes of undeserving, hell-deserving sinners? And there's only one ground, and I've made it known to you again. It is the ground of the Savior's atoning sacrifice alone. Therefore, sinner... See tonight that your soul can be saved on that basis. Then he's the physician who administers his remedy. It says, he healeth all thy diseases. And that word healeth contains the thought of repair. It's the same word as is found in that great statement in Exodus 15, 26, where God says, I am Jehovah that healeth thee. There's one of the names of God, Jehovah Rapha. The Lord that healeth thee. And in that name, Rapha, that word Rapha, as I've just said, there's this idea of the Lord coming to the poor sinner. And the sinner is hopelessly and completely beyond human remedy. Nobody can do anything for him or her. That individual is stricken with this sin and this, and this situation that nobody can actually mend except Almighty God. And so what does the Lord do first? The Lord forgives. And then the Lord heals the soul. What does that mean? The healing of the soul. It means that the Lord puts into that soul a new life. A new principle of life. And the Holy Spirit enters. And a work of grace is done. And the Lord repairs what sin has broken. What sin has destroyed. He changes the inclination of that person's will. He takes away the old desires. He gives new desires. He removes the liking for those things of the world that used to satisfy or so the person thought, that satisfy heart and mind, and only if they, there was the wisdom to see it was leaving that individual hopelessly and helplessly in despair. But the Lord comes along and the Lord does a work of repair and he brings the remedy as the great physician and he heals all the diseases of the soul. Let me tell you, sinner, Christ not only forgives, but Christ mends the heart broken, wrecked, ruined by sin. He brings new life. He said, I am come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. And then we read in the third place, going over these words once more, before I lay them, he redeemeth thy life from destruction. And there is the deliverer who applies his redemption. He's the judge who gives the pardon. He forgives all your iniquities. He's the physician who heals the soul and gives a whole new life. He is also the Deliverer who brings this redemption. It says it here, He redeems thy life from destruction, the life of the soul, headed to hell under the condemnation of God. And yet, in a moment, the Lord can snatch that soul from the awful destruction to which it is headed. The word for redeemeth here comes from that wonderful name that's given to Jesus Christ by Job. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Job 19.25, a kinsman Redeemer. Christ took our nature. He became man all in order to redeem men from their sin and from the ultimate destruction that sin brings. He came to do all that. Think about that. He stooped down. He entered into humanity. He became one who was subject to the law, all for the purpose of redeeming souls from destruction, saving them from eternal ruin. And in all of that, we have the saving of the soul. There is the need for the soul to be saved, and there is the nature of the soul being saved. There is the requirement of it because of the state of the soul, and then there's how it happens, and it's all here the saving of the soul. Then there is also the sustaining of the soul. For it says in verse number 4, the second part of that verse, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. The Lord puts a crown of loving kindness and tender mercy upon the souls that He saves. It's not a literal crown, of course, but the word for crowneth here also means to encircle or to surround. And you can understand that. If you think about a literal crown placed on someone's head, well, it encircles that person's head, it's round about that person's head. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The Lord encircles those whom He saves, He puts a crown around them, He surrounds them with all that they need to keep them right through the rest of their days until they get home to heaven. That's what I mean by the Lord sustaining the soul. And what's the point of all that? What is the great and glorious issue that's in view there? Well, there are many things I can mention. But you know, there's a very common fear among men and among women and among young people. And we've often heard it. And maybe some of you said it. If I became a Christian, I couldn't keep it. It's as worn out as an old tire. And it's still being used. If I became a Christian, I would just not be able to keep it, whatever it's supposed to be. But that's what people say. And in many cases, while it's just an excuse... In many cases, there is a genuine fear in the hearts of some at least. An awareness, I'm powerless now. How could I ever maintain a Christian life? How could I live for God? How could I become a new person? How could I give up this sin and that sin and the other sin? How could I become what a Christian ought to be? And you know, there's a lot of truth to that. A Christian is supposed to be a new person. A Christian is supposed to be different. A Christian is not supposed to live the way he or she used to live. A Christian is supposed to be someone and the past is gone and more and more it goes. And there's now a new life and a whole new realm of things that have opened up and new desires and new loves and and new uh, longings after God, they all are born in the soul. And this person looks on and he says, well, that's okay for him or her, but I could not ever achieve that. My dear friend, I come now to the point I'm making. You're not asked to keep anything. Listen to what God says here. Listen to what the psalmist is testifying as he talks to his own soul. And he tells the soul, first of all, God has saved you because he's forgiven all your iniquities and he's healed all your diseases and he has delivered your life from destruction. But now he's done something more. David's telling his soul, the Lord's sustaining you. He crowns you. He encircles you, as I say the word means and obviously he indicates, he encircles you with loving kindness and with tender mercy. And what the Lord is revealing there, my dear friend, is very, very... Simple, but so important. The Lord does not forsake the soul He saves. He never does that. He encircles that soul with graces, with strengths, with blessings to keep that person only for the rest of time but for all eternity. Is this why you're not saved? Because you fear that if you take that step, you're going to slip up and you're going to make a fool of yourself and you be genuinely are thinking, I'll only make a fool of Christianity. I'll make a fool of the Lord and you've been holding back and holding back and holding back. And now the Lord's showing you not only about the saving of the soul, but the sustaining of the soul. Crowning that soul with loving kindness and tender mercy. But in the last place, notice the satisfying of the soul. Because it says in verse number five, who satisfieth thy mouth, with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, the soul has a mouth, in a certain sense. It's said here that the soul has a mouth. It's a figure of speech, it's a metaphor, because it doesn't have a physical mouth, obviously, but yet the mouth is mentioned. And what it is simply saying is, that when the Lord deals with a man's soul, oh, God's dealings with the soul, there's the saving of the soul and there's the sustaining of the soul and then there's a the satisfying of the soul because that soul is then given the capacity to take in what is good for it. To feed on spiritual things. To start to read the Bible, to start to pray, to start to take in thereby all the blessings that the Lord has for the inner man, the soul, the being of of the person who is now a Christian. And therefore, here's a wonderful thing for you to understand tonight. There is the satisfying of the soul because the soul is given a new capacity to take in those things in which there was formerly no interest whatsoever and for which there was no desire whatsoever. And Then the Lord changes everything. And that person's soul now can't get enough of the Scripture, of fellowship with God's people, of communing with God in prayer, of talking to other believers about the things of God. I could keep on going here, but you can see the point. Let me ask you a question, therefore, as we come near an end tonight how is it with your soul? Is your soul saved? Is your soul enjoying God's sustainment? Are you living in the great joy of God satisfying you inwardly with spiritual blessings and spiritual enrichment? Or are you still outside the fold and family of God lost in your sin, on the wrong road altogether in this life of yours, and your soul deprived and depraved and guilty and fallen and and still in the grasp and in the pull and the hold of an old world that is going to ruin you and damn you forever. And my friend, it has to be one or the other. There is no in-between. You're either saved or you're not saved. You're either enjoying God or you're not enjoying God. You're either looking forward to heaven, or you're sitting there tonight and you realize deep down with an awful dread, I have nothing to look forward to but everlasting hell. And therefore what you need to do is get to the God of David. There was a time when, as David testifies elsewhere, And puts it this way, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Therefore, having shown you tonight that David here is describing for us and defining for us what God had done for his soul the impetus of which I've applied to you, to your minds tonight, is it not time for you to take that step that David had taken actually in his youth? Because he tells us in Psalm 71 that the Lord had been his trust from his youth and his teacher from his youth. Take that step that David took as a young man, or by God changed everything, and God made him a new man, and God made him the sweet psalmist of Israel. Will you take that step this night, sinner? Young or old? whoever. Come to Christ. Wait no more. Trust Him as your Savior. Put in Him your simple trust and thank God He will do what David found. Let us bow together in these closing moments of our meeting and Unite our hearts before the Lord. May the Holy Spirit take the word and apply it to us and bring it home to us. If there is anyone here tonight who is anxious and troubled and wants a word with me afterwards, I'd be glad to speak with you and help you. I urge you to make that known. Seek out help tonight. And may you be able to go on your way saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Father in heaven, thou dost know every one before thee, thou dost know every heart and every need. And Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God will take the Word and He will apply it and He will bring it home and He will write it on hearts tonight, savingly, Bring about that change that needs to occur. And may sinners pass from death unto life and from the power of sin and Satan unto God. Hear prayer, O Lord, we pray. Have mercy. Have mercy, Lord. And save by thy grace. Part is with thy blessing. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of our God and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of all who are Thine both this night and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.